perhaps the most famous painting of this biblical text was painted by an artist called Caravaggio from Naples, Italy. You may know the painting of the supper at Emmaus that he painted in the 16th century. It's a well-known painting, and it has three men around a table, Jesus and two disciples, and then another man stood off to one side who was serving them at the meal. Caravaggio uses light in the painting to represent knowledge. And so there's this beam of light that comes in from the corner and illumines Jesus' face and also that of the two disciples, seeming, therefore, to depict the moment of recognition. The light represents knowledge and the three around the table see, or more specifically, the two disciples see who this man is at last. The servant is off slightly in the background, his face is still darkened, suggesting he did not understand the significance of that moment. Caravaggio depicted Jesus in that painting without any facial hair. He was strongly criticized for it. At the time, it was considered a very ignoble thing, uh, not very esteeming of Jesus to depict him without a beard. He was one of the few painters to have ever done that. And then there is one last detail of the painting that is significant that often gets overlooked, and it is very simply that of a fruit bowl. As you look at the painting, you survey the men around the table, the servant, the use of light. In the foreground, there is a fruit bowl, and it's significant because it sits half off the table. It's not fully placed where we think it should be, but it sits precariously balanced on the edge of the table, as if ready to to topple and the fruit spill everywhere. As our critics have discussed the significance of this fruit bowl, many have suggested it was Caravaggio's way of drawing you into the painting. If you ever get to go and see the painting, it's in London, You stand and you survey all of the details and then eventually your eyes will fall on the fruit bowl and you get an urge to jump in. You want to take part. You want to catch the fruit before it topples. You want to become a participant in the scene. And I think that was intentional on the artist's part. In a similar way, Luke records this narrative for us in such a manner that we are not allowed to become passive bystanders. Luke gives us this text in such a manner so as to want us to participate. He wants our involvement in the road to Emmaus narrative. Or to put it another way, he does not want this text to go in one ear, out the other, and to effect no change in our lives. Now, how does Luke bring about that sense of participation? It is not through a fruit bowl. It is through the use of perspective. And this point is really important for our interpretation of the text. So I want to labor it now, and I want to come back to it again and again within the sermon, 
Luke plays with perspective in this narrative as a key mechanism by which he might get our involvement. You'll notice in verse 15, Jesus is named. At the very beginning of the text, Luke says, Jesus showed up. He tells us that. Now, just remember, as Luke has the prerogative to record this narrative according to his particular style, carried along by the Holy Spirit, according to his style, he did not have to tell us that this man was Jesus. He could have said, a guy showed up. And then we read the narrative, as it were, from the same perspective as the disciples on the road, wondering, who is this man? If Luke had chosen to do that... This would have been a very suspense-filled text. We would read it wondering, who is this man that knows so much about God's plan in the Old Testament? But that was not what Luke did. Rather, he tells us from the very beginning, intentionally, Jesus showed up. So we read this text from a different perspective than that of the disciples. They're on the ground in ignorance. They're trying to figure out who this guy is and the significance of the things that have happened in the previous days. We are in a very privileged position. We know from the very beginning, this is Jesus. And we view the whole narrative from a different vantage point, and that's intentional. You see, if Luke had put us in the same position as the disciples, in ignorance, suspense-filled, wondering, The implication would be that Luke thinks we need to learn the same things as them. If Luke had put us on a level playing field with the disciples, that would be his way of communicating to us, you still need to learn the same things they do. Their lesson that they had to learn was that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. They still hadn't grasped that. But because Luke tells us, From the very beginning, this is Jesus. He gives us a privileged vantage point. The implication would seem to be that Luke assumes we have already embraced the fact that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. We're in chapter 24 of his gospel. The assumption, I think, on Luke's part is that we have been tracking with him from chapter 1. And slowly but surely, chapter by chapter, we have been putting the pieces together and arriving at an endorsement, an affirmation of the necessity of Christ's suffering. So that when we get to chapter 24, the last in his gospel, he is no longer trying to instruct this to us, but simply affirm the confession that Luke thinks we have already made. This text for Christians should be a very encouraging text. Luke treats us as if we have already affirmed the necessity of Christ's suffering. And what he wants to do is to encourage us in that confession. Now, at the very end of the text, that disparity between us and the disciples vanishes. At the very end of the text, they get it. They see Jesus. And at that moment, we now 
know as much as they do. Or they know as much as we do. All of a sudden, at the very end, there is no difference between us and them. Which means the dynamic has now changed. And as we see them returning to the disciples and professing the truth about Christ, that then becomes an imperative for us. That then becomes the example that we are to follow. So in summation, this text is given to encourage us in the gospel so that we might proclaim that the Lord indeed has risen. We can divide it into four scenes, beginning with what I've called an unforgettable journey, verses 13 through 17. We're told that that very day, referring to the day of the resurrection, so just picture this, the tomb has been empty really just for a matter of hours. That's it. On that very day, two of them were going to this village named Emmaus. Notice, Luke doesn't record their names, at least not at this point. He just allows them to be labeled as two of them. That might be a subtle way of Luke showing us that this was a common problem amongst all the disciples. By not naming them, he's not saying this is a a problem that these two guys had but the rest didn't, but rather the disciples were struggling to put together the pieces. So these two were walking to Emmaus, and then Jesus shows up. Jesus himself draws near, verse 17, verse 15, sorry, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Notice there the passive voice. Their eyes were kept. Oftentimes in the Bible, when we see the use of the passive verb like that, it is an indication that it is God who's doing the work. God, in his sovereign wisdom, is keeping these men's eyes shut from who it is that just showed up before them. And Jesus says, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still. Their, their walking, their motion comes to a stop. Their hike towards Emmaus hits a pause at the point of Jesus' question. They stand there looking at one another, and Luke records that they look sad. It's a very brief introduction to what's about to happen, but it is incredibly significant. Why is it significant? Well, if you remember, two weeks back we were in the Ascension text, and one of the things I mentioned that Luke loves is journeys. You remember how I talked about in Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, Luke loves to record journeys. It's one of his things. It's a motif in these two books. Lots and lots of journeys in Luke's gospel and Acts. And when you study these journeys that Luke records for us, what we see often, not always, but often, is that they depict some kind of manifestation of God's grace. It is often the case that when Luke records for us a journey, he is using it to show us a surprising manifestation of God's grace. Now again, if we've been tracking with Luke from the beginning and we've been following his strategy of recording the gospel and we're into this motif of journeys, 
By the time we get to chapter 24 and we read of the men setting off to Emmaus, we should be bursting in our hearts saying, here comes another manifestation of God's grace. And sure enough, could we get a greater manifestation of God's grace than Jesus himself showing up? It's right there. And so what you see immediately is a palpable irony. As Jesus meets with these men and their response is to look sad. Their hearts are heavy within them. Jesus is stood right there and their hearts are heavy. That's the irony of the scene. By way of implication, we may laugh at how ironic this scene is. And yet, often their irony can also be ours. Meaning, you may know and readily profess that Christians should be the most joy-filled of all people on the planet. And yet so often, we lack joy. We have to fight for joy. Our lives don't abound in the joy that we know the gospel should give us. It could easily be that you've come here this morning and your life is not overflowing with joy. It could be that you're here this morning and your life has not been full of joy for some time. This week, this month, this whole year. A slight variant on that problem may be that you come here this morning joy-filled but that your joy is seated in something else. It's the same issue. If you come here lacking joy, not having joy in the gospel, or you come here joy-filled and your joy is seated in something else, both misrepresent the reality of your salvation in Christ. The responsibility of the Christian is to see Jesus for who he is over and over again and be joy-filled. How do we get that joy? We move on now to what I've called an important conversation, and that is an understatement. This is the most important conversation these men will ever have. Verse 18 and following, one of the men named Cleopas starts to explain He's in disbelief that this stranger doesn't know anything of the things that have happened recently. And so he starts to explain them to Jesus. He said, concerning Jesus, he was a prophet mighty indeed. Cleopas is not diminishing Jesus' ministry in any way there. Jesus was a prophet. He was the finest prophet that ever lived. And Luke's gospel in particular emphasizes his prophetic ministry. He's not diminishing his role when he says this man Jesus was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. He talks about his persecution by the chief priests, the rulers, who delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. He then says, and yet we had hoped he would redeem Israel. Going beyond the ministry of just the prophet, we hoped he would actually be the promised redeemer of our nation. 
Besides all this, Cleopas says, it's the third day now. Three days have passed since his crucifixion. Most likely, Cleopas knew of the Old Testament scripture that prophesied concerning three days passing. He then said there's, there's been something amazing that's happened since. The tomb's now found empty. The women reported that angels appeared. There's been a report that's come since then that the tomb is empty and this man is actually alive. That's what we've been told. And we found it to be true that the tomb doesn't have his body anymore and yet we haven't seen him. The irony again is everywhere in the speech. Specifically, he just preached the gospel to Jesus. He just preached the gospel to the risen Lord Jesus. He's not missing any information. He's got all the pieces. But he's telling the gospel in disbelief. He can't get his mind around it. He hasn't yet seen the implications of the empty tomb for all that Jesus said and taught. Now, I want to be fair to these men. I have deep empathy for them at this point, and I'll tell you why. If you come to my house around about this time of year, one of the things that the Twist family does by way of a tradition now is a jigsaw puzzle. This is me living with my wife in an understanding manner. (laughs) I despise jigsaw puzzles, mostly because I am terrible at them. This is a tradition we receive from Laura's side of the family. Growing up, she would always do a jigsaw puzzle around about Christmas time. Apparently, there's a logical connection there, so we've now inherited it. So around about this time of year, we'll purchase a many-thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle... And we'll lose several days of our lives to this thing. (laughs) And I'm terrible at it, Laura, is a ninja at jigsaw puzzles. For me, I see no system other than trial and error. (laughs) Hundreds of pieces, all the same color. They all look the same shape. I try and put them in. They don't work. It's just a trial and error thing. And I quickly run out of patience for it. I have all the pieces. I just can't put them together. These men had all the pieces. But they couldn't understand how they fit together. And so Jesus responds, and note his response. He calls them foolish, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Then he asks a question. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now again, if you remember, the last time I was with you in the Ascension text, I noted that one of the features at the end of Luke's gospel into the beginning of Acts is Luke's use of rhetorical questions. In the last three narratives of the gospel and the first narrative of Acts, Luke uses rhetorical questions to communicate the point of the text. So it begins with the empty tomb, the angels. They ask the first rhetorical question. Why do you seek for the living amongst the dead? He's alive. Now Jesus asked the question, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? In the next text, 
Jesus again shows up and he says, why are you fearful? And in Acts chapter 1, the angels, angels again ask, why do you stand looking into heaven? He's coming back. So these questions that come at the end of Luke's gospel into the beginning of Acts communicate for us the point of the text. And here Jesus says to them, it was necessary that Christ should suffer. And there's Luke's favorite term all through the gospel, all through the book of Acts. Count it. It was necessary. Over and over again, he's burdened to show us that all these things had to happen and it could not have happened any other way. That the gospel only works when Christ suffers. If you affirm a gospel wherein Christ is not suffering, you have no gospel. If you are here for the first time this morning and these things are strange to you, or maybe you've heard the gospel preached many, many years but have never embraced it, you have to understand Christians are unashamed of the fact that our Lord was found hanging on a tree. That is not something we try and cover up. It is something that we delight in. As strange as it would be to the world looking in, we delight in the fact that our Savior is a crucified Savior. Because without that piece of the puzzle, we have no salvation. It is only when this man comes to earth, taking on human flesh, lives a perfect life, and dies in our place that we can be made right with the Holy God. It is only when he is pierced for our transgressions that we have any salvation to speak of. And so Jesus says, that part that you can't get your head around, the fact that this man's life ended with a crucifixion, it was necessary. It could not have been any other way. Jesus then gives them the best Old Testament theology lesson ever taught. He takes them through the Old Testament scriptures to show them the necessity of Christ's suffering. One of the classes that I teach at the Master's Seminary is Old Testament Survey. If you're sat there this morning thinking, I would love to have known what Christ said, trust me, I'm thinking that even more. Every year, it's my privilege to sit with the students and work from Genesis through to Malachi. Three hours on a Tuesday afternoon, we just plod through the Old Testament. And from time to time, I just wonder, what did Jesus say on the road to Emmaus? If I could just have his teaching notes. The truth is, we don't know for sure, but we can have a good guess. And why do I say that? Again, when you go to the book of Acts and you study the apostles' speeches, Acts is full of speeches. On average, there is a speech in the book of Acts every other chapter. There are many speeches in the book of Acts. It's a feature of that book. If you study the speeches there is a level of continuity or repetition in what the various apostles preach. They all seem to be going back to the same collection of Old Testament texts in order to proclaim 
Christ as the Messiah. Where did they get that from? Most likely, they learned it firsthand from Christ. Most likely, their Old Testament theology is derived from their Lord and Savior, Jesus. They heard him teach, and they're just doing the same thing that he did. So with that in view, we could say, quite possibly, what Jesus said to these men on the road to Emmaus was to go back to a text like Deuteronomy 18. To go to Deuteronomy 18 and to say, from there, there is another prophet coming in the likeness of Moses. When Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, he prophesied, there's someone else coming like me. He's going to come like me. He's going to give Israel a law. He's going to save Israel, and they must obey him. He probably took them then to the Psalms. Psalm 2, which we read this morning, showing that the nations plot in vain against this man. That he is God's appointed king over the whole earth. And the very best thing that any enemy of God could ever do was to pay homage to the son. He's God's appointed king, so don't plot against him, but rather kiss and honor the son. Psalm 110, my Lord said to my Lord that I have set you up as a, as a Lord over the enemies. I've made your enemies a footstool. You now reign rightly over them, showing them that God had destined this man to be the savior and the ruler of the world. And then at some point, undoubtedly, Jesus would have taken them to Isaiah 53. And with all of these wonderful texts in place proclaiming the lordship of Christ at the same time, without any sense of incongruity, without any sense of theological discord, he would have taken them to Isaiah 53 and said, but this man had a mission. By God's will, he was to grow up amongst us without any form or majesty that we would esteem him, without any beauty that we would care to behold him, but rather he would live his life in such a way that we would look at him and consider him to be stricken for his sins. That's how he was to be considered by mankind. And yet the wisdom of God was, in fact, he was stricken, he was pierced, He was crushed for our iniquities, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And when we look at his life and when we look at his death, what we are to understand is that this was God's means of reconciling us to himself. This was God's means of reconciling us to himself, so that as we proclaim the necessity of Christ's suffering, as we put our faith in him and nothing else for the salvation of our souls before a holy God, we find forgiveness. That is what Jesus laid out to them, and that is the hope of the Christian life. And over and over and over again, we must return to the cross as the foundation of our joy. 
There are many things that we delight in as Christians. There are many benefits from being a child of God. But it has to begin and end with the person of the Lord Jesus. We have to focus our attention on the cross as the means by which we are made right with God. The men then enjoy a meal with Jesus. Verses 18, 28 through 31, a memorable meal, again, a gross understatement. A meal that they would never forget. Now I do think at this stage, something is beginning to happen in the men's minds and in their hearts. They're beginning to get something of the picture. Why do I say that? Two reasons. First of all, they plead with him to stay. Stay with us. For it's toward the evening and the day is now far spent. They, they seem to recognize that it is important to have this guy around. They don't want him to keep going. And then secondly, notice that it is Jesus who gives the blessing at the meal. In ancient times, that would be reserved for the most senior person at the table. So simply the fact that it is Jesus that blesses the bread seems to suggest that these men are acknowledging to some degree that this stranger who they have now welcomed in is of some importance. Then, as Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. It all falls into place and they see not only who Jesus is, but I would venture to say they understand his gospel. Now, two questions arise from this part of the narrative. One, why did Jesus vanish the second that they realized it was him? Why didn't he stick around for a bit? And second question, why did they recognize him around the meal table? and not on the road. First question, why did he vanish, is answered by understanding that Jesus' role in this narrative is primarily instructive. He's lived a perfect life, he's died on the cross, he's risen again. The gospel mission has happened. His role in this narrative is primarily instructive. So he instructs them on the road to Emmaus, and when the instruction has taken its, its intended effect on them, they, they see it, he's no longer needed. So he vanishes. But that then leads to the second question. So why did it finally happen at the dinner table and not on the road? And this is of critical importance for us all to understand. God wants from us an embracing, not merely of facts, of information, of data concerning Christ. What God wants from us is a pursuing of a relationship with this man. You see, in ancient times, the meal table was very, very sacred place relationally. We've lost a lot of this in our day and age, but in Jesus' time, to invite someone into your home to share a meal with them was a declaration of fellowship, of friendship. 
The meal time was the most intimate expression of fellowship that you could enjoy with somebody else. So hospitality in the ancient world was not the way we understand it, to have your friends over. The people that you get along well with will have those folks over because we like them. That's not hospitality according to the ancient tradition. Hospitality truly understood in biblical times was having a stranger into your home. I don't know this man. I'm going to have him into my home and I'll treat him in such a way that when he leaves, he'll be considered a friend. He enters a stranger, he leaves as a friend. That's biblical hospitality. And what would he do as he came into your home? He would enjoy a meal with you. Or, a different perspective, if you were ever to get invited to the king's palace for a meal, for a banquet, you could breathe a deep sigh of relief. Because that is his public declaration, I am for this person. If you weren't invited, who knows what the king thinks of you. But when he brings you in for a meal, he is signaling to everyone, I am his friend. That was the place that the the meal table held in Jesus' day. So it is theologically profound that their eyes are opened around the dinner table and not on the way. On the road to Emmaus, they are gaining information. And please do not misunderstand me. You need the information in order to form a right relationship with Christ. You cannot circumnavigate the data and make up your own Jesus to enjoy a relationship with. That doesn't work. You have to have the pieces of the gospel that the Bible gives to us. But to stop there means absolutely nothing. Satan knows the information that these men got on the road to Emmaus. He knows all the pieces. What is critically important and what God wants from you is a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus. That is what matters and that's why their eyes were opened around the table. Because it signals their friendship with Christ. If you have never formed a saving relationship with Jesus. Just know that it doesn't count for anything to know all the answers, to have all of the pieces on the table. It doesn't affect your right standing with God. You are still as much an enemy with God as the man who knows nothing of the gospel. What God wants is for you to put that information together. To submit to Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, your King, and your friend. That's when sins are forgiven. As a Christian, I think this is one of the hardest battles of the Christian life. I remember when I was saved at 21. I was in my last year of university. I virtually put my degree on hold. I did the bare minimum I could do to stay in the course because all I wanted to do was to read this book. It was so new. It was so fresh. All I wanted to do was read this book, 
I wanted to be at church. I wanted to pray. It was so new. But the novelty wears off. Five, ten, twenty years pass. One of the hardest fights of the Christian life is to keep pursuing a relationship with Christ. To get up every day and to enliven your heart to the truths by which you have been saved. To get up every day and to say no to other things that so easily creep in. And to say, I want to just spend some time with Christ in his word and in prayer. Because that's what keeps me alive. That's what keeps me loving him. That's what keeps me on the straight and narrow living a life like a Christian. And just by one means of application, taking our example from the road to Emmaus text, they gathered round a meal table. That is when the lights go on and they see him. You understand one of the primary means of grace that God gives to his church by which we continue in the Christian life is simply fellowship with other believers. Don't underestimate the value of what happens each and every Sunday when you gather with God's people. One of the ordinary means of grace that God gives to his children by which we persevere is fellowship with believers. You have got to surround yourself by people that believe the same thing as you. God has designed your perseverance to function based upon time in his word, time in prayer, and time with the saints. So let me just encourage you to make your participation in this local body an absolute priority in your life for many reasons, but not least for your own spiritual health. The last scene. A sure declaration. Verse 32 through verse 35, the men race back to the other disciples. As I said at the beginning, notice the discrepancy in perspective has now vanished. Luke has written this narrative in a very masterful way. He opened the story by creating a chasm of perspective between us and the disciples. He told us, it's Jesus. They don't know. So we read about the road to Emmaus from two different vantage points. They're wondering who it is. We know exactly who it is. Luke is assuming that we don't need to learn the thing that they've learned. They had to understand it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Luke is assuming we knew that that we've endorsed that, we've embraced it. But notice at the end of the narrative, that discrepancy in perspective has now vanished. They know what we know. They embrace the gospel and so do we. At the end of the narrative, these last few verses, we are on the same playing field as the disciples, meaning as they raced to, pro to proclaim the truth about Jesus. That becomes for us an imperative. We are to follow their example at this point in the text. They run back and they say, the Lord has risen indeed. 
That is to be our confession. If it is not your confession, if you don't find those words on your lips day after day, you can't but help speak of the Lord Jesus. If that's not you, most likely it's because you are not meeting with Jesus through God's word regularly. You see, our proclamation of Christ, both in the church and outside of the church, is not primarily a function of the opportunities God gives us. We don't proclaim Christ primarily when we see an opportunity. That's not what determines what we say. Our proclamation of Christ in the church and outside of the church is primarily a function of our love for Jesus. When you love Jesus, you can't help but speak about him. Whether the opportunity presents itself or not, you're found speaking about Christ. In the church and outside of the church. Say two things. Inside the church to other believers. Don't think that it is a wasted ministry to preach the gospel to one another. Quite the opposite. You have no idea how much the Lord would use you in the lives of other saints if you would be committed to speaking the truth of the gospel every time we gather. We need to be reminded of the truth of sins forgiven. We have to be reminded that we are sinners saved by grace. And you can have an enormous ministry in this church by simply being determined to not allow the conversation to flow along the lines of small talk, hour after hour, week after week, but to speak about eternal things and to tell like-minded believers the truth of the gospel. That's a ministry that we all have. And then outside of the church, the world desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus. There are people in your life who have not yet embraced this. And to think that you could be used as a vessel of God's grace such that it just might be that one day somebody is in eternity with Christ because you shared the gospel with them. That the Lord would be pleased to use you in that way to bring about their salvation. And it begins by looking at Jesus in his word, enlivening your hearts to the truth of the gospel day after day after day, so that we would be found obedient to this command. Command that comes to us through the example of the disciples as they couldn't help proclaim the Lord indeed is risen. May that be our truth this morning. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that Jesus is risen. We praise you that it was necessary for him to suffer. In his suffering, our wounds are healed. And we're so thankful that according to your electing grace in our lives, we are the redeemed who 
joyfully affirm this truth. Father, I do pray for anyone here this morning that has not embraced the gospel in a saving way, not just affirming the information, but according to your grace, forming a relationship with Christ. We ask that even today you would be kind, quicken their hearts unto repentance of their sin and faith in the Lord Jesus. And Father, would we all be found faithful, pursuing Christ, renewing day by day our love for the Savior, as an outworking of that love, telling anyone who would listen of Christ's glory. We commit ourselves to you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.